First of all, uh, good morning. Um, it is seriously... Uh, it is seriously lovely to see you all. Uh, this is my first time at the church. So first of all, I'm sorry I haven't managed to get here before. Um, I know I've been introduced already, but just in case, uh, my name um, is, is Tom. Now, before I charge, I've just realised I've bought the most impractical bottle because it doesn't actually stand up. So um, I'm just going to have to leave it there and hope it's going to be all right. Uh, now, before I charge headlong into this preach, I do feel like it's important I properly introduce myself because although I am based over in the Fordingbridge site um, I do feel like we are all part of the same family and when you have a family get together and you're not familiar with one of the people in that family like a like a random uncle um, you would normally try and get a bit of the lowdown on that person before they turn up now, unless you've already tapped up Mark or Dale or Paul Williams, you might not have had that lowdown yet. So here it is. Here's the lowdown. First of all, uh, yeah, I'm Tom. I, I'm a husband to my wife, Ellie. I'm a dad to those two children who were there who've just disappeared. That's uh, Rory and Joseph. Um, I'm a teacher. Uh, and I teach at the infant school down in Ringwood. It's a bit of a small world because I did notice. I kept on turning around because I noticed that one of the children I taught last year rocked up and it's just through there. So I've got like worlds colliding here. Uh, and people do say that when I preach, they, they know they can tell that I'm a teacher. And I can't work out if that's a compliment, an insult or just a mere observation. So apologies if, um, if you don't like teachers. Um, I've been a Christian for about 12 years. Um, I've been going to NLCC in Fordham Beach for must be about six years. And before that, I was a teacher in Southampton. I went to a church in Romsey at NLCC on the Fordham Beach site. Um, I help out on the PA team. Uh, I'm a life group leader along with Alice, who's the poetic one. Um, I've recently been involved with the youth work. I'm coordinating life groups. I anchor some services and I preach occasionally. So I do like to keep myself busy and I do have a problem with saying no. Uh, I'm a cricketer where I put in loads of effort and the um, outcome is variable. Um, I have, according to my wife, an unnecessarily large collection of novelty suits. And last bit, but probably most importantly, I love God. And I'm not quite sure how people do life without him. Now, a quick disclaimer, and Ken did come up and talk to me a little bit earlier saying, talk slowly. I am a little bit like an excitable puppy. I'm not going to run around with toilet paper coming out of my mouth, um, but I can get a bit excitable, and I do tend to talk louder and quicker the more excited I get. So I'm going to try really hard to just keep it slow. Okay, so on with our preaching series. So across the three sites of NLCC, we've been doing a, um, a series based in Galatians 5, exploring and unwrapping the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people do refer to the, the nine Christ-like attributes in Galatians 5 in the plural form, fruits. And it is true that each of those attributes is distinct, but the scripture refers to them as the singular, fruit. These nine attributes come together in a Christian's life to reflect a complete picture of the character of Christ. So the sites um, have enjoyed a fantastic set, uh, set of preachers about the nine, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. 
Hang on. That's eight. Today is the ninth. And we're going to be completing and bringing that final piece of that jigsaw that brings the nine, uh, the, the nine attributes together. Now, I do love watching films. And one of my favourite films is actually based on today's theme. So, Jurassic Park is an awesome world full of great wonder until the control system breaks down. It was lost and it was a complete nightmare. A Christian life could be a world of wondrous beauty, but then it can turn pretty ugly if the control system is lost, if self-control is lost. So today I'm going to unpack what the Bible has to say about self-control, what the results of not showing self-control looks like when self-control works beautifully and what it means for us. But first up, I was going to quickly pray. So Lord, take my words and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you through the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm guessing a logical place to start would be actually working out what we actually mean by self-control. It sounds so simple and straightforward, perhaps pretty self-explanatory. It's not a flashy concept or an especially attractive idea. It doesn't turn heads or grab headlines. It can be as seemingly small as saying no to another Oreo. Slice of meat feast pizza with stuffed crust, a milkshake, or another half an hour on Netflix or Facebook. Or it can feel as significant as living out a resounding yes to sobriety or sexual purity. It is at the height of Christian virtue in a fallen world. And its exercise is quite simply one of the most difficult things you can ever learn to do. Self-control, our hyphenated English is frank and functional. In short, it means remaining master of your own domain, not only in the hunky-dory, but, but also when faced with trial or temptation. For me, I mean, this may just be talking personally, but I would say self-control may be the epitome of easier said than done. Because of our human sin nature, everyone's personality has negative impulses and qualities. Overcoming them can be a constant tug of war. Enter the need for self-control. I mean, I've been, I've been listening to myself speak, which is quite a helpful thing to do. It sounds a bit negative so far. It sounds like a bit of a downer. So is self-control negative? Self-denial, self-sacrifice, it does sound so negative. It sounds like we're, that we're losing out all the time. However, when confronted with the true understanding of what human nature produces, we can see that the fruits of self-control are entirely positive. Our human nature is, is one of kind of falling short. There's a war waging inside of us. That kind of, the, the feeling of God versus our like worldly desires. Our fleshy bodies, we're tempted and we fall into sin. 
I know it's mentioned in the Bible, worshipping other gods, fighting, rage, selfishness, drunkenness, and that's just what's listed there. There are so many other things as well. But as it says in Galatians 5 verses 19 to 20, it feels like self-control is the gate that closes on those behaviours and guards us against them. Self-control equals good. The problem is, is that it doesn't come easy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, which is usefully called, those little subheadings uh, that uh, that different parts have, is usefully called the need for self-control, the Apostle Paul strongly exhorts us. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets a prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it a slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I don't know, has anyone here done like a a 5K or a half marathon? I mean, I'm seriously impressed. Um, And you can probably expect when you do that, that you'll get like a a medal or a t-shirt or something to acknowledge your accomplishments. Finishing a half marathon, I, by the way, I have absolutely no idea what it feels like to even start a half marathon, let alone finish one. But that is no easy feat. Back in first century Corinth, only one runner would receive the prize, the laurel wreath, to signify that they were victorious. Paul is using this image to call us to a life of dedication to Christ and his mission. Just as an athlete strives to win, so too we should lay aside any hindrance and give ourselves to the cause of Christ. The first thing to notice is the utmost tension, energy, and strenuous effort pictured by athletes straining for that finish line in hope of the glory of winning. This is the way to run, says Paul, if we want to attain our potential. This requires steady, intense concentration of focus by the runners. They cannot afford to become distracted by things off to the side of their course. If they do, their effectiveness in running will surely diminish. When I read this, it made me think of like some comical video where someone's kind of running along, looking to the side and just running straight into a lamppost. Or, another film remark, if you've uh, watched the film Matrix, the girl in the red dress. If you haven't watched Matrix, this next sentence is gonna be completely lost on you, but when Morpheus is guiding Neo through the maze of the Matrix, Neo gets distracted by this lady in a red dress, and then he gets called out. Were you listening to me, Neo, or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? Neo falters, and he's held at gunpoint by Agent Smith. Keeping focus requires control, not allowing distractions to interfere with the responsibility at hand. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, says Jesus. 
Here, the issue is single-mindedness. James writes, he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Controlling our focus can go a long way towards making the run successful. Paul then says the victorious runner sets Christians an example of rigid self-control. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. It is not only a matter of concentrating while he is racing, but in all areas of life, because his whole life impacts on the race. Now, as I've alluded to you, I don't want to disappoint you, and this may shock you big time, but I am no runner. I do own a sweatband, but that is purely for fancy dress purposes. I like the idea of it, and there have been occasions where I might have gone for a little run, or I've got on the exercise bike. And when I was actually on the exercise bike, I felt great. I thought, yes, yes, I can do this. For that time, I felt like I was going to do it. But then I get off the bike and I pick up 12 Twixes. It's all well and good riding on the bike for a while, but it can get undone quite quickly. The runner follows a rigorous program with a rigid schedule every day. He rises at a certain hour. He eats a breakfast of certain foods. He fills his morning with exercises and works on his technique. After a planned lunch, he continues training. He eats his third planned meal and goes to bed at a specific hour. His whole life impacts the race. So it's not just keeping ourselves focused and controlled while running, but the bigger picture. Throughout, he not only avoids sensuous indulgences, but he must also abstain from many perfectly legitimate things that simply do not fit into his programme. An athlete who is serious about excelling in his chosen sport must live this way, or he will not succeed except against inferior competitors. He will suffer defeat by those who do follow them. So we can learn a great deal here about self-indulgence and self-control. It's not enough for us just to say, oh, I draw the line there at this or that or, or that vice and I have nothing to do with these. We will have a very different time, difficult time growing under such an approach. As Paul says in Hebrews 12, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by such so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Many unsinful things are weights simply because they are so time and mind-consuming. Because we do not want to fail in accomplishing the highest purpose for which we are called, we must run light to endure the length of the course successfully. On the surface, being a Christian seems easy to do, inasmuch as a Christian is basically a, a person that trusts in Jesus Christ. No one is more worthy of our trust and he is fully able to bring us into the kingdom of God. But that is a mere surface observation. The truth is that being a Christian can be very difficult because the real Christian is one who, because he trusts in Christ, must try and turn and head away from the nagging voices 
and wants that fight away inside us to squash down the appetites of the flesh and the, of desires of the mind with the aim of pleasing him. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul illustrates self-control in its positive aspects by showing what it produces along the way. And most importantly, in the end, Jesus makes it clear in Revelations 2 and 3 that the overcomers, the victors, the conquerors will go into the kingdom of God. Self-control plays a major role in bringing victory through our trusting relationship with Jesus Christ. It goes as far as it's those that exercise self-control in the race of life claim the prize and as overcomers and the victors. Who here wants to be the victor? What would it look like without self-control? Well, I think we can all probably picture it, but Proverbs 25 gives us a really simple picture. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without any walls. What does that mean? Well, the imagery of the city conveys the idea that the person who lacks self-control is defeated and defenceless when it comes to temptation. Self-control is the ability to say no to yourself whenever your desires are unhealthy. And I feel like I should emphasise that it's not necessarily what seems unhealthy to you or society or others, but what God calls unhealthy that matters, which I will come back to a little bit later. If we think about the opposite of the imagery used in verse 28, then I think we can say that in some way, having self-control, that practising self-control, leads to protection and preservation. But as it stands, the proverb seems to be saying that the man or woman who lacks self-control has been morally, has been spiritually overrun by whatever is tempting them. Therefore, if you are not in control, something else is. The second half of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 puts it this way. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. What's really interesting about that verse 28 is the verse just before it. I was about to point out that would be verse 27, but I think that's unnecessary. Um, it is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one owns glory. Now, the first part about honey actually points us back to verse 16 of the same chapter, where it says, if you found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Wow. Talk about consequences of not having self-control. Now, I don't know anyone who's a honey junkie to the point of vomiting, but I do know that food can rule us. I do know that a person can eat until he or she is sick. I apologise for the crudeness of that. I do know people can stress eat. I do know that a person can use food to cope with hard times and a hurting heart. But notice how that verse <coughs> takes us from honey to humility or the lack thereof. I think verse 27 is using honey as an object lesson. In essence, Solomon is saying... You know too much honey will make you sick. But did you know 
that too much bragging, too much prideful posturing is also unhealthy. Yeah, it definitely is. So think about that for a minute. All these verses from chapter 5 are speaking about our need for self-control. But consider the breadth of the topics addressed, from your appetite to your arrogance. I think that reminds us that self-control is important in every area of our lives, since in every area, all of us can go to unhealthy extremes. Brothers, sisters, friends, in what areas do you desperately need to exercise self-control? In what ways today do you feel defeated and defenceless? But also consider with me the ideas of, well, let's turn to Proverbs 16. In verse 32, we find another reference to the same idea, only this time it's expressed positively. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The person who is slow to anger is the person who can rule his spirit. That is, his or her heart does not override his or her head. Or to put it another way, the person demonstrates self-control when it comes to responding out of righteous anger. They may feel angry, but he or she is able to keep it in check. So notice that along with appetite and arrogance, we can add anger to the self-control subjects addressed in Proverbs. We find a similar idea in the next chapter in Proverbs 17. We read there, whoever restrains his words have, has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man with understanding. So the individual has a cool spirit is the individual who rules his spirit, and such a person is characterised by restraint. So do you see that? In chapter 17, verse 27, that restraint has to do with one's words. Proverbs is emphatic when it comes to our speech and self-control. So let's think about what God has shown us this morning about the importance of self-control. Think about the areas addressed your appetite, your arrogance, your anger, your answers, your words, your speech. I think it's a t this morning is about a chance for us to be self-reflective and think, is there an area of our life where we are not in control, where something else is in control? So what does it mean for us? I think I've basically boiled it down to this. Displaying self-control is often a matter of responding rather than reacting. It's responding rather than reacting. When we react to a situation, we let our emotions take control. We are more likely to become defensive and say hurtful things. Responding, however, involves developing a thoughtful response that's guided more by reason than by emotions. As Christians, our responses to situations are to be guided by the fruits, the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus gave us the perfect example of self-control because he lived a sinless life and possessed every fruit of the Spirit. Jesus demonstrated self-control because 
He was sent to earth to carry out his father's will. He was to live a perfect life in order to set an example for us. And in the end, he died for our sins so that we may have eternal life. In Matthew 26, 53, Jesus says, Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus knew what he was sent to earth to do. And despite his own fears, he demonstrated self-control in submitting to his father's perfect plan. Without the self-control of Jesus, we would face death as punishment for our sin. So next time that we're in a tough situation, I'm speaking to myself as much as anyone else, we've got to remember Jesus and that perfect example that he gave us how to live. While it may seem challenging to demonstrate self-control, the rewards will be great. And as Jesus demonstrated, to submit ourselves to God does not mean that God overrides us and we become only possessed and passive vessels. No, to submit to God means that we recognise God knows best and thank goodness he does. We're accountable to God and that God helps those who trust him. Therefore, when we are tempted to respond too harshly to unkind person, we exercise self-control in order to honour God and what God has said about loving others. But if you're like me, then all this talk about self-control can be fairly depressing. In society where streaming services have somehow made the word binge a good thing, in a society where everyone is told they deserve to have it all, in a society where the label addiction is overused and misunderstood, in a society where so many have been traumatised and are attempting to cope in wildly unhealthy ways, in a society where self-care and self-consumption seems to push out self-restraint, in a society of sinners like us, self-control can seem unrealistic and unattainable. I mean, when I was writing this, I was stewing in quite a bit of guilt. And some of you may be sat here beating yourselves up about an apparent lack of self-control. Brothers and sisters, friends, wonderfully, God knows our need and God has provided for our need. Think about what this series has been all about, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. How great is God's provision for us. For all who embrace his son, Jesus, in faith, God has given us the Holy Spirit. And that spirit gives us everything we sorely lack, including self-control. Isn't that wonderful? No one wants to be like a city broken into and left without walls, right? When we consider God's word and the example of God's son, we recognise how important self-control is. 
when the New Testament speaks about self-control, it not only speaks of that which have given, but also those who have striven. I want to go full circle back to the running race picture. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable one. Run so that you can obtain it. Jesus is the example of self-control. Jesus could have stepped down from the cross at any point. Instead, he hung there until he died. Jesus's self-control led to our salvation. What could your self-control lead to? And if I can ask the worship band to come up as we think about how we can respond to this. If, um, if, you're, um, if you're a Christian, if you are a true disciple of Christ, then God has called you to exercise self-control in all things and to do so like an athlete in his or her sport. Think about discipline, focus, endurance. I think if I was to ever try and run an actual race, I think you have to start by thinking about what you struggle with, what you need to work on, whether it be the food you eat, how good you are at keeping routine. But I think with self-control, I think it starts about being honest with your struggles. Being honest about things that you find hard. But through his spirit, God loves to empower us for self-control. So I think the obvious, one of the obvious responses this morning is think about all aspects of our lives, of your life. Is there an area you're struggling with? God knows it. He wants you to kind of acknowledge it with him. So that's going to be the main response time. Now, if that is something that is sitting with you, that's something that God wants to deal with this morning. And that can be done as simply as you chatting to our Father and acknowledging it. But if that's something that you would like prayer for, I mean... I would love to pray with you about it. Mark, I'm sure you would. But also, remember another means of grace that God loves to use. His people. How can you guys, as a family, support each other with things that you struggle with? If appropriate, if there's someone that you, that you trust, talk to them about it. I'm sure they would love to pray with you about it. And if there's anyone here who isn't sure about their relationship with God, if you aren't sure what it really means to like, be a Christian, then please know that there's hope. If you feel like almost you're in slavery, there is hope. Only Jesus can set you free and make true self-control possible. If you're feeling powerless, powerless this morning, 
Jesus has power to change you and gives power to new life. I think let's just confess our failures in this area this morning and look with gratitude to the forgiveness that Christ makes possible.